clear this up for me. Joe Biden won the election. He is the legitimate president of the United States. The election was not stolen, correct? Look, Joe Biden's the president. Uh, there were a few states that did not follow their state laws. That's really the dispute that you've seen continue on. Is that really the dispute, Congressman Scalise? And I wonder why it's continuing on. Hmm. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in Red Bluff and Redding, California, on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, we'll be talking about Pennsylvania today on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV. Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, in Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis-St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day for your listening convenience on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Welcome to the Bradcast. Glad to hear have you here with us today. All right, coming up, the uh, the long-overdue Desi Doyen, uh, the long-overdue return of the great Mark Joseph Stern. Yay! Uh, Slate's great legal and court reporter. Uh, He will be returning to the broadcast following a couple of decisions by the U.S. Supreme Court this week on uh, one on turning over Donald Trump's tax returns to the Manhattan District Attorney, as we discussed a bit with Marcy Wheeler on yesterday's show and the court's decision on Monday to dismiss a Pennsylvania challenge by Republicans, I should say, to uh, a Pennsylvania uh, ruling by their state Supreme Court in the 2020 presidential election, challenging the results there in which I actually agreed, shockingly enough, at least in part, with the dissents from uh, the decision on Monday, the dissents from Sam Alito, Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch. In part, you agreed. (laughs) Uh, I did agree, and uh, yet they were on the minority in this particular decision. 
And uh, yes, yeah, strange bedfellows indeed that I'm agreeing with Alito and Thomas and Gorsuch on anything. Okay, so in you're going to part or otherwise. True. So you're going to battle it out with Mark Joseph Stern. Well, as it turns out, yeah, Mark, uh, at least based on his own coverage of the case over at Slate, he appears to disagree with my take on that. Okay. So he will be here to tell me why I am wrong about it. <laughs> Or vice versa. We will see how it goes. Uh, but but just by way of background here, here's Republican Minority Whip. You heard a little of this at the top. Uh, my Republican Minority Whip, Congressman Steve Scalise, on Sunday, this Sunday, with Jonathan, Jonathan Carl of ABC on uh, ABC This Week. Clear this up for me. Joe Biden won the election. He is the legitimate president of the United States. The election was not stolen, Correct. Look, Joe Biden's the president. Uh, there were a few states that did not follow their state laws. That's really the dispute that you've seen continue on. But at the end of the day, when you look at where we are in this country, uh, either we're going to address the problems that happened with the election that people are still, millions of people are still concerned about. The Constitution says state legislatures set the rules for elections. That didn't happen in a few states. And so going forward, look, Joe Biden's okay, the president. But- but does uh, but I, I, I mean, I mean, I, I towards what people are angry about. But 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 Congressman, I know Joe Biden's the president. He lives at the White House. Uh, I asked you, is yeah. he the legitimate president of the United States? And do you concede that this election was not stolen? Very simple question. Please yeah, just answer. Yeah, look, it. Once once the elect once the electors are counted, yes, he's the legitimate president. Uh, but uh, if you're going to ignore the fact that there were states that did not follow their own state legislatively set laws. That's the issue at heart that millions of people still are not happy with and don't want to see happen again. You know, look, we're, you can rehash the election uh, from 2020 all day long, but there are people concerned about what the next election is going to look like. Are we going to finally get back uh, to the way the rule of law works? And I think that's the biggest frustration many people have. Is okay. Those states that didn't follow the law, are they going to keep doing that in the future? Or are we going to finally get back to what the Constitution calls out for electing our leaders? Mm-mm-mm. Mm-hmm. So uh, you notice he did not say there that it was not stolen. That he, he would not concede. And that seems to be what Jonathan Carl was on about. I'm more interested in the bigger issue of what he kept saying there. You heard Scalise say millions of people are still concerned about the fact that states did not follow their own state state's laws. We have to get back to the rule of law, the Constitution and so forth and, and, and following the state law now. Millions of people are not concerned about that, but the Republican Party and Donald Trump have sort of hooked onto this idea. This invented idea. Well, it's in the Constitution yeah, as but they it's a... as they read it, it. That's how they uh, suddenly believe. decided that they're suddenly. going to read it that's now right. after not reading it that way for more than 200 years. 50 years. Yeah, exactly. But anyway, so that's what uh, the, the, the decision on uh, on Monday had to do with at the Supreme Court about with about which I may disagree with Mark Joseph Stern. We'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, also, he's been covering the criminal probe by the Fulton County District Attorney down in Atlanta, uh, in Georgia, into Donald Trump's attempted election interference, which, as Mark reports, actually could result in anywhere from one to three years in jail for our disgraced former president. As incredible as that seems, and it could bring a criminal indictment, at least, pretty darn quickly, he argues um, in his report. We will discuss that as well momentarily. But first, very quickly, 
A bit more good news, along with the idea of Donald Trump going to jail. <laughs> this one, uh, more certain than the long and continuing road to accountability for Donald Trump, and one that uh, actually I've been trying to get to since it broke on Monday. Uh, the Commonwealth of Virginia has executed more people in the last 45 years than any state other than Desi's home state of Texas. Yep. After the uh, Supreme Court established the modern legal framework governing death sentences uh, in 1976, Virginia is one of a handful of states that executed more than a dozen people in a single year. But Virginia also has not executed anyone since 2017, and it will now, at or at least very, very soon, abolish the death penalty altogether, which I see as really good news. Two bills to abolish the death penalty in Virginia won final approval in that state's General Assembly this week and are now heading to Governor Ralph Northam's desk, who is expected to sign them. Virginia, historically one of the nation's most prolific death penalty states, would then become the first in the South to abandon the ultimate punishment. There's some good news. That is good news. Yes, even the South is turning progressive. Remember a few years ago when I said we're at the dawn of the progressive age and then Donald Trump went and won and screwed everything up? Yeah. All right, so that was just a blip. That was just a, a You're taking pause. a mulligan on that? Uh, uh, no, I'm not. I'm sticking with it. <laughs> I'm saying that Donald Trump's four years of hell was was just a blip, like in uh, Endgame, in the Avengers, Avengers movie. Avengers Endgame, yes. yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, things will we'll get back on track here, and I think we're headed that way. Well, I hope you're right. The uh, state Senate in uh, Virginia approved a House bill that bans executions and establishes a maximum punishment of life in prison without the possibility of parole. A judge would, however, have the discretion to suspend part of that sentence, which was a sticking point, apparently, for some of the Republicans who had pushed unsuccessfully to make life without parole a mandatory minimum. Uh, in a statement from Governor Northam, a Democrat, Senate Majority Leader Rich Saslaw, also a Democrat, and House Speaker Eileen Filler Corn, also a Democrat, uh, they issued a joint, a jointly issued written statement saying, "Over Virginia's long history, this Commonwealth has executed more people than any other state." And like many other states, Virginia has come too close to executing an innocent person. It's time we stop this machinery of death. Delegate Michael Mullen, a uh, prosecutor for the city of Hampton who had sponsored one of the House bills, acknowledged that he had probably made errors while prosecuting thousands of criminal cases and said he could not tolerate the idea that an innocent person might be put to death. He said, I no longer wish to be on the side of vengeance. I ask that this body abolish the death penalty in Virginia. House Minority Leader Todd Gilbert, a Republican, then scolded the Democrats for expressing sympathy for criminals, saying, I have yet to see even a little bit of concern for victims of crime. That should concern every Virginian. That is where that caucus is now talking about the Democrats. Well, another delegate, another Democratic delegate, Chris Hurt, uh, you may remember him. Five years ago, he suffered the loss of his girlfriend, Allison Parker. 
when she and a co-worker were gunned down on live television while conducting a news interview. Remember that? Uh, he said that he had not planned to speak on this point, but once uh, Gilbert was talking about, uh, you know, not caring about the victims of the crime, uh, he thought he should speak up. He said he was tired of the pandering. He described his anger at uh, the death of uh, his girlfriend, but saying that the state should not be an agent of revenge. He said, we are not a nation of emotions. We do not need to be a society that determines that there should be an eye for an eye. Good for him. Good for him for speaking up. Uh, Virginia has imposed capital punishment since colonial times, in fact, ahead of the rest of the nation. Since a spy for Spain was executed in the Jamestown colony back in 1608, more than 1,300 people, in fact, 1,390 people have been put to death in the state, according to the Death Penalty Information Center. Since the U.S. Supreme Court reinstated the death penalty in 1976, Virginia has executed 113 people. That, as I noted, is more than any state. Except Texas. But Texas, sorry. Yeah. Uh, if it makes you feel any better, Oklahoma is a close third. That does not make me feel better. The death penalty is outlawed in neighboring Washington, D.C. and in Maryland. Maryland abolished it in 2013. Virginia would become the 23rd state to ban the punishment following Colorado's abolition last year. Uh, but until recently, Virginia lawmakers had resisted the national trend toward abolition. But, but after Democrats won back majority control of the state assembly just a couple of years ago, things changed. Why? Well, because elections have consequences, don't they? In this case, consequences like keeping people from being killed by the state, being murdered by the state. In Virginia, home to the one-time capital of the Confederacy, the death penalty has had a strong connection to the Commonwealth's history of racial injustice. State law, and this is some incredible uh, stuff from the Death Penalty Information Center, state law apparently used to differentiate capital and non-capital crimes based on the race of the perpetrator and the race of the victim. Once that discrimination was eventually declared unconstitutional, uh, it persisted in practice nonetheless because of the discretion afforded to all white juries According to Robert Dunham, the executive director of the Death Penalty Information Center, from 1900 to 1969, he said, Virginia did not execute a single white person for any offense that did not result in death, while 73 black men were executed for rape, for attempted rape, or for robbery. So as long as you don't kill someone, if you know, uh, and you're white, uh, you will not be put to death in Virginia, at least from uh, 1900 to 1969. But if you're black and you rape someone, or you attempted to rape someone, or you're or accused, you, or, or you're accused, or you robbed someone, or you're accused of it, then uh, yeah, 73 black men have been put to death for that. 
zero white men. Other than that, no, the death penalty, it's not systemically racist at all. Where would you get such a silly idea? Oh, what? You got that from the U.S. Supreme Court, that idea? Who keeps allowing the this uh, just killing after killing by both state and federal governments? Just one more reason, by the way, to get rid of the filibuster so that we can expand the court and seat humane justices who actually have the decency and the character to understand these pretty damn basic ideas. And yes, maybe actually help America to become great. Again? Well, we'll settle for at all at this point. On a related thought, we've got a bit more SCOTUS news to chew over this week, and some of it may even result in Donald Trump going to prison. Though even I would argue against putting him to death, no matter what he did. Uh, anyway, there's a twist that uh, he never saw coming. His own Supreme Court clearing the way for him to go to prison. Mark Joseph Stern from Slate.com, he joins us next, wherein we may actually disagree for a change on some court news this week. But we'll see how that goes. That's straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to The Bradcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Desi. The Bradcast and the Green News Report survive thanks to you and your support. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today to help us stay independent every day over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. The long and winding road Actually, the long and winding road that leads to accountability for Donald Trump is what we will be talking about in a little bit with my guest. Uh, but uh, on yesterday's broadcast, oh, welcome back to it. I'm Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Yesterday, I reported on the Monday decision by the U.S. Supreme Court to dismiss, to clear house, really, to purge all of the existing MAGA challenges to the 2020 presidential election results as filed by the Trump campaign or GOP-associated groups in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, Georgia, and Arizona. The Supreme Court just cleared house on Monday. All of them, uh, after the Supremes had sat on these cases for several months by this point, uh, they were all purged from the court's docket, mostly without comment. But for the Pennsylvania case, in which Clarence Thomas, Sam Alito, and Trump appointee Neil Gorsuch had dissented in that case. That case was perhaps the only one out of about 60 filed by Team Trump uh, both before and after the election that had not been totally rejected by the courts. Uh, this case had alleged that Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court had violated the U.S. Constitution when it allowed for three extra days for mail-in ballots to arrive after Election Day last November. That extension was due to the pandemic and the U.S. Postal Service's admission that they could not deliver ballots on time. Now, the Pennsylvania Supremes had ordered this extension for late arriving ballots that were cast before Election Day in compliance with the state constitution, the state constitution's mandate for fair elections. But Donald Trump and state Republicans argued that the U.S. Constitution 
mandates that only state legislatures may set procedures for federal elections, not secretaries of state or governors or, as in Pennsylvania, not even state Supreme Courts. Now, this extreme radical reading of the U.S. Constitution's Elections Clause citing that, quote, the times, places and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. And as per this radical reading, only by the legislature thereof. Now, that reading of the U.S. Constitution has never been affirmed by a majority of the U.S. Supreme Court. Three justices supported this interpretation back in 2000 in the Bush v. Gore case, I believe. Four justices appeared to uh, support this notion before the November election in the Pennsylvania case, but that resulted in a tie vote at the time. Amy Coney Barrett had not yet been jammed onto the court, so the three-day extension stayed in place because it was a four-to-four tie before the election. Now, as it turns out, Uh, It actually wouldn't have mattered, at least in the presidential race, as there were only about 10,000 late arriving ballots in Pennsylvania, where Joe Biden ended up winning by about 80,000 votes. So the uh, Supreme Court on Monday dismissed the case as moot. But for all of the phony, ginned up, evidence free claims that uh, Team Trump tried to make that the election was somehow stolen from Trump for Biden. This constitutional argument, as radical as it may be, at least it has some basis in reality and is the one that Republicans are now citing for all of their election challenges pretty much moving forward as they attempt to institute all forms of vote suppression measures in response to their losses in 2020. Some 165 new restrictions have now been proposed in state legislatures in about 33 different states so far. And the GOP has been pushing this notion that only state legislatures may determine any such provisions. State Supreme Courts cannot overrule them if they do. And apparently, if this argument is ever upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court, even governors could not veto such measures if they are adopted by the state legislatures. In uh, dissent, then, to the dismissal of the Pennsylvania cases by the Supreme Court on Monday, as I noted on yesterday's show, Justice Alito wrote, quote, a decision in these cases would not have any implication regarding the 2020 election, but a decision would provide invaluable guidance for future elections. And on that point, listeners may have been shocked to learn yesterday Uh, And and my guest momentarily may or may not agree with me. I actually agreed with Alito and I explained why. And I'll do so again, if need be, with my guest. If I do, by the way, and if he disagrees, you should definitely go with him on this one rather than me, because he is much smarter on these things than I am. But uh, but there was another element in the Pennsylvania decision on Monday by the U.S. Supreme Court that only Clarence Thomas seemed to be concerned about. And that is what Mark Joseph Stern focused on in his uh, his own coverage on Monday uh, on the uh, ruling by the high court. Joining us now to explain that part of the case and why I am wrong about my belief that the court 
should have heard this case and settled this constitutional matter once and for all is her old friend, the great Mark Joseph Stern, who expertly covers the law, the court system, the U.S. Supreme Court, election law, and much more for Slate.com. Oh, Mark, welcome back. And uh, by the way, Happy New Year, I think. I don't think we've spoken since last uh, December when we were all so young and innocent then. Yes, it's been far too long. I am so happy to be here. 2021, already better than 2020. I know the doubters and the haters say it's just as bad, but I think things are looking up. Well, see, isn't that just like you? Always optimistic. So I'm (laughs) glad to hear it. Listen, before we get to the point on this Pennsylvania case where you uh, and I may or may not agree, Uh, And I hope I accurately sort of laid out the matter because it's a little bit in the weeds, uh, but you'll correct me there as well if necessary. But let's start with your central concern, specifically about what you describe as Clarence Thomas's alarming dissent on Monday in that case. Yeah, so uh, I'm concerned with the nuts and bolts of the the jurisprudence here, but I'm also concerned with Thomas's rhetoric because um, Thomas used this case to go off on a two-page tangent uh, in which he really condemned vote-by-mail and suggested that it is rife with fraud, um, that it's inherently suspect, um, that, that cheating is pervasive when people vote by mail, um, and also repeating the, the Trumpian lie that we don't really know if there's a, a ton of fraud in the 2020 election because it might be so subtle and so brilliant that it has gone, quote, undetected. Uh, now, all of that, I think, is incredibly inappropriate for a sitting justice to be saying, especially when it's pretty much irrelevant to the case at hand, and especially when it's not true, as none of that was. I mean, we had officials in Trump's own Department of Homeland Security say that the 2020 election was the most secure in American history, and yet here we have Clarence Thomas uh, grimly warning that, in fact, it might have been rife with fraud that we just didn't know about because it's so hard to detect. That kind of rhetoric, specifically these quotes that Thomas laid down, we're going to see that crop up in a thousand Republican lawsuits over the next years and decades. It's going to become the mantra for Republican election lawyers and Republican lawmakers, and it's going to be used by Republican legislatures to justify the slew of new voter suppression laws that we're seeing passed in GOP-controlled state houses around the country. And that justification is largely that even though there is not evidence of fraud, and even though fraud, in fact, may not have actually happened, the mere idea that people fear there is fraud is reason enough to stop these processes because he believes mail-in balloting is is more prone to fraud, etc. So just the... The concern that people have, whether it's legitimate or not, is enough uh, for people to uh, write laws based on that. Is that am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, that's correct. And as you can see, it's a vicious circle, right? Because what happens is Republicans, including partisan judges like Clarence Thomas, claim that fraud exists even when it doesn't. The public responds by fretting about fraud, even though it doesn't exist. 
and lawmakers then respond by passing voter suppression bills under the guise of preventing fraud, bills which partisan judges like Clarence Thomas uphold on the grounds that legislatures have the authority and have the justification to suppress voting rights to prevent people from thinking that fraud exists even if it doesn't. And that was the same argument. I remember that argument well, Mark, from, um, you know, some years ago when they were pushing, and they still are, of course, pushing these photo ID laws, claiming that even though we can't prove that there's any photo, uh, that there's any fraud at the polling places, because that's where Republicans had used these photo ID laws before. Now they want to do them for mail-in voting as well. Now that more Democrats are using mail-in voting, used to be more Republican, so they didn't bother there. But the argument was that, okay, the state can't prove that people are double voting at the polling place, but the fact that people fear that because they've seen it on Fox News, that alone is enough to justify those laws. Sounds like the argument is uh, the exact same argument is now being made by Clarence Thomas for yep, uh, vote right. fraud, for uh, mm-hmm. mail-in voting. Yeah. Yep, that's exactly right. <sighs> All right. Oddly enough, uh, there was actually four justices who would have found the ruling in the uh, in that uh, by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court to extend the mail-in ballot deadline by three days uh, before the election. There were four justices, but only three dissented to this decision to toss the case as moot on Monday. I believe it was Gorsuch uh, who sided with the extreme interpretation of the Constitution back in October that only the state legislature can can set these laws. Uh, But uh, he appears to have let it drop now. He was not part of the dissent on Monday. Uh, it was actually Kavanaugh who seems to have let it drop. Okay. Gorsuch has been consistent here. He has always ruled in favor of uh, basically crushing state courts that try to protect voting rights. Kavanaugh is the one who seems to have backed off that opinion since October. Okay, so I, I think uh, this radical interpretation of the Constitution's election Elections Clause, leaving any and all decisions about the time, place, manner for elections to state legislatures and only state legislatures, not governors, secretaries of state, state elections boards, or even state courts. I think that is a serious concern, and as Alito noted... A decision in these cases would not have any implication regarding the 2020 election, but a decision would provide invaluable guidance for future elections. Why isn't, uh, and and I agree with him, why is this not the right time to deal with this issue, Mark, rather than in the partisan heat of an election, as I argued yesterday, and as I suspect is going to absolutely come up in the future? So I think there is a, a kind of legal answer to that question and then a more practical or political answer. Um, to start with the legal answer, what, what the court suggested is that these cases are moot, uh, meaning there, there's no more controversy to be decided, uh, which would mean that the court literally has no power to decide the case, right? There has to be a live controversy, a dispute between the parties. Uh, and here, you know, the election is over, the results have been certified, and the ballots that were counted that are, that are being contested here, they ended up not mattering for any federal election, including the presidential race. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, uh, as a legal matter, arguably, this, this case is just over, and even if it would be helpful for the court to clarify the rules, it doesn't have jurisdiction anymore because it's all in the past. 
the, the practical political answer um, is that we should be very afraid of what the court would say, mm-hmm. and that that fear is enough for us to just hope that the justices put off a decision on this matter for as long as humanly possible. Because what they would uh, say, now that they have a 6-3 to three majority, you might come out with a majority ruling that says, yes, in fact, that's it. The Only the legislature can ever set any rules, provisions, or anything else when it comes to elections. Yeah, and that would have consequences well in advance of 2022, because, mm-hmm. uh, for instance, as we've discussed on this show, state Supreme Courts have been pretty aggressive about policing the bounds of voter suppression in mm-hmm. recent years. In Pennsylvania and North Carolina, for instance, we've seen state Supreme Courts strike down uh, gerrymanders, right? Uh, congressional gerrymanders in North Carolina. And that kind of decision would be off limits mm-hmm. if the Supreme Court took this step that the radical conservatives want, because uh, it would leave the power of redistricting exclusively in the hands of state legislatures. And so state courts would no longer have any power to protect voting rights. Um, and that is just such a terrible precedent that even if it's inevitable, even if it's coming our way eventually, mm-hmm. I-, I do think it's probably better to put off. Well, okay. And here, let me offer you my counter to that and see what you think, because for example, uh, example uh, Richard Pildes, uh, NYU election law professor, says the issues here are major ones that the court is inevitably going to have to confront in upcoming federal elections. Without a clear resolution, federal elections will continue to be roiled by these issues. Republican House Minority Whip Steve Scalise on Sunday you know, argued that uh, this there are uh, there quote there were a few states that did not follow their state laws. That's really the dispute that you've seen continue on. So they're digging their heels in on this. And without a ruling one way or another, whether it's a good ruling or a bad ruling, I fear this matter is going to now haunt every single election and every election challenge from here on out. And in one sense, I would rather see it argued and decided one way or another when we are not in the heat of an election because, well, for one thing, Mark, next time this comes up, it's going to be a matter of the Supreme Court actually deciding the result of an election one way or another. You know, if this brought up as a live issue while the votes are being counted, no? Yes, that is true. That is a good argument, and I think reasonable people can absolutely disagree about this. Uh, I don't know if Sam Alito counts as reasonable, <laughs> um, but, but let me just offer the rejoinder to that, okay. which is a, a decision in this case or a similar case is not actually necessarily going to clear everything up. In fact, it might not, it might not much uh, clarify very much at all, um, because there are endless variations on the theme of legislatures and state courts and state officials disagreeing about election law that are going to bedevil the federal courts if they take this, this plunge into the abyss, probably for the rest of our lives. Uh, I mean, states and state legislatures have delegated all kinds of power over elections um, to both election boards, local and statewide, mm-hmm. to secretaries of state. 
sometimes saying the legislature will weigh in but will cooperate with election boards, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes delegating power to state courts to oversee procedures. Uh, a single decision in one state is not going to delineate just how far a legislature can go in delegating those powers. It's not going to clarify just how much authority a state Supreme Court has over election law, unless the court mm-hmm. just goes all out and says zero authority. Um, it's going to raise a whole host of new questions that I fear will just clog up the courts for the rest of all time. And so that search for clarity, it's, it's understandable. I think we all want clarity here, but I don't think the answer is a decision in this case or a similar case from the Supreme Court. All right, let me take one last shot at explaining how wrong you are here. But <laughs> the uh, if, if, in fact, uh, they do have a ruling and, and an ad- adverse ruling at that, you know, the question is, what do we do about it? And uh, if they come out with a clear ruling now, again, not in the heat of an election, then Congress could potentially act. Uh, we've been talking about H.R. 1, the For the People Act, which might resolve some of these issues. You cited in your article uh, the need to expand the Supreme Court. In both of these cases, we would need to overcome the filibuster and the, the Jim Crow-era undemocratic filibuster. But right now, Joe Manchin in West Virginia, Kirsten Cinema in Arizona, they're against doing that. If the Supreme Court came out with this ruling... Might that not be, uh, you know, what would be needed to get Mansion and Cinema over the hump to do the right thing here? That could either pass H or HR one and or expand the Supreme Court, so we could bring the matter back to the court and get a reasonable ruling on that issue. Okay, that is a terrific argument. Thank right you. Finally, and that is finally. One I, I can endorse, actually, um, despite my trepidations. And this is something I've argued in other contexts as well. You know, a lot of liberals are scared and, and don't want the Supreme Court to hear cases involving abortion uh, and guns and the environment, for instance. And I disagree because there's no telling when Democrats will have a majority in Congress again, mm-hmm. uh, but they have one right now. Mm-hmm. And I really think that the Supreme Supreme Court should show its cards and that the liberal justices should should try to force the court to take these hard cases mm-hmm. so that Cinema and Manchin have to confront this problem now, you know, and can't just deal with future hypothetical mm-hmm. bad rulings, but actually stare the reversal of Roe in the face and say, no, we're still not abolishing the filibuster to expand the court. So I think that is a good argument, and I think with H.R. 1, it's a similar issue. Um, We've talked about state legislatures here, but the Constitution also gives this power to Congress. Congress can override state legislatures Mm -hmm. on questions of a federal election, and that's what H.R. 1 would do, right? It, It would end gerrymandering for congressional districts. It would ensure an expansion of mail voting. It would end a lot of voter suppression in federal elections. And, um, you know, I think there would be a salutary effect in the long run of Mm -hmm. the Supreme Court going all out for a crazy decision now. At the same time, I am very scared of what it would do in the short term. And I just don't have a lot of faith in Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. I I know you're scared, but I accept your apology. (laughs) All right, let me take a quick break here and we will come back with another uh, sort of related matter uh, down in Georgia. And, well, elsewhere, some uh, accountability may be coming for Donald Trump. Mark Joseph Stern of Slate.com has some thoughts on that as well. 
So stand by, Mark. Uh, we'll be right back. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to The Bradcast. Five major corporations now control more than 80% of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Yes, I'm going, going back to Georgia. We can't get away. Where my memory strays through the southern ways of my youthful yesterdays. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Yeah, I knew there was a reason that we have been covering Georgia so closely on this show for years and years now. But before we get there, we're speaking with Mark Joseph Stern, a great legal reporter from Slate.com. On yesterday's program, we also spoke with uh, Empty Wheels' Marcy Wheeler about another ruling that got much more attention from the U.S. Supreme Court on Monday, an apparently unanimous decision to allow Donald Trump's financial and tax documents to be turned over to Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance in his criminal probe reportedly into alleged tax, bank, and insurance fraud by Donald Trump and his organization, as well as the uh, his hush money payoffs before the 2016 election to porn star Stormy Daniels. Now, uh, Marcy thinks that this signals that Trump could be in some very Serious trouble in that case, uh, even if she's a bit weary of Cy Vance, as she told us. But, uh, Mark, you recently suggested that the criminal investigation of Trump's apparent election interference by the Fulton County District Attorney uh, in Atlanta could also mean some serious trouble for Donald Trump, perhaps even jail time. Let me get your quick take uh, before we get to Georgia on on the New York case first. Uh, Is Trump in trouble there as you see it now that the Supremes have ordered his uh, financial documents turned over to, uh, to Vance's grand jury probe? The answer is yes, with the caveat that I share Marcy's trepidations about Cy Vance. Um, You know, this is a real investigation and a long-running one. It's Mm -hmm. been going on for more than two years now, and the holdup for quite some time has been uh, Donald Trump being president, using the courts to shield his tax returns and other financial records from the grand jury that we know has already been impaneled, right? We know there is a grand jury in Manhattan that has been uh, approving these subpoenas Mm -hmm. uh, and that Trump was fighting them for quite some time. Now the grand jury has seen those records. If it hasn't now, it will very soon. Um, And that could lead to a lot of swift action here because the, the, the prosecutors have laid the groundwork. They've investigated, we know, bank fraud and insurance fraud by both Donald Trump himself and the companies he runs. They're looking at felony offenses here, not just civil offenses, not just uh, run-of-the-mill white-collar stuff, but serious crimes 
Um, and I do think there is a chance that we could see an indictment of Donald Trump coming down the pipeline in the near future. All of that has to come with the caveat also that this is a black box, mm-hmm. that grand juries are very, very, very secretive, uh, rightly so. Um, but this is obviously a, a live investigation, and it certainly seems like they've gotten enough material already yeah. um, to suggest that Trump is, is a, is a you know, at serious legal risk. You, you say near future. Uh, a, of course, I'm, I, I could hear all of our listeners uh, leaning forward and saying, how near? How near? <laughs> uh, do we have any sense of that? And then the other question is, and the reason this has taken so long, uh, at least in part, um, you know, this this case that was decided on Monday, uh, we already knew how the Supreme Court was going to decide because they had said as much in an earlier decision. But there was this uh, request for this case to be expedited on an emergency basis, as I understand it, which is usually decided in days or weeks. But it was four months before the Supreme Court made this decision, I think, unanimously on Monday, at least with no dissents. Um what was the holdup? Why did it take so long for them to say, yeah, you can have those documents? So unfortunately, Trump used every delay tactic in the book um, to prevent these documents from getting to that grand jury. Um, and the, the bottleneck for quite some time has been the Supreme Court itself. Um, it, it's difficult to understand exactly why, but for many months, the Supreme Court simply sat on this case yeah. after it ruled Seven to two that Trump could not hide these documents. Uh, It it simply sat, the court sat on its hands and seems to have waited until Trump had left office um, before denying this final request. That is a puzzling decision, um, and it suggests some kind of behind-the-scenes compromise between the Mm. justices that, in the end, they were going to let the grand jury see these documents, but they weren't going to rush it, and to the contrary, they were going to delay it so that Trump would be out of office when they finally brought the hammer down. So I can't even figure out what the, what the compromise would be. I mean, they basically said, yeah, sure, uh, you know, nine and, nine and nothing, go take the documents. Yeah, I, I mean, the, <laughs> it's, it, the compromise was basically, let's just delay this, I suppose. Um, and, and look, we do see the, the justices using delay, using inaction to their advantage sometimes. Mm. Um, we, for instance, saw the court refuse to expedite some cases involving DACA, the, the, the Deferred Action Program, mm-hmm. um, in a way that ended up benefiting Dreamers and preventing the Trump administration mm. from, from expediting that. So I, I, it's hard to speculate about exactly what happened here. At the end of the day, what matters is the documents are probably out now before that grand jury. And the reality is, if the grand jury was willing to subpoena these documents, the grand jury is probably willing to issue indictments as well. And the, the holdup is probably on behalf of the prosecutors. The prosecutors Prosecutors are, are seeming to be waiting for some kind of moment, some development, um, before taking more action here. I don't know what that is. I won't pretend to. Um, but I, I'm really skeptical that the grand jury feels it doesn't have enough evidence hmm. at this point to issue an indictment. Well, I will, uh, I'll, I'll be uh, ridiculous enough to speculate that I feel like they needed to get the original documents before they can bring a, an actual 
uh, indictment so that they are, you know, not working from New York Times reportings, but, you know, they actually have the evidence. But we will see. Um, now let's speculate about Georgia, uh, where we learned a week or two ago that Atlanta's new Fulton County District Attorney, Fonnie Willis, uh, has opened up a criminal investigation into Trump's attempt to interfere with that state's election results. As we all heard in that recording of that phone call with Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, cajoling him, uh, arguably threatening him to, quote, find exactly 11,781 votes to uh, flip the results in the state. Mark Joseph Stern, you write that uh, the Georgia probe may pose the most immediate threat to Donald Trump. Why is that? Well, in part because we know more about it. Uh, The Fulton County District Attorney has issued document preservation notices to a number of state officials, including Raffensperger, um, just outright stating that there's a live investigation here regarding that phone call, uh, potentially looking at charges of criminal solicitation to commit election fraud, which is a felony offense in Georgia that carries one to three years in prison and seems to be exactly what Trump's conduct on that phone call fits into asking the Secretary of State to find 12,000 votes, in other words, to falsify election records. That is um, the sort of heartland of election fraud. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the, the, the district attorney has also acknowledged that she plans to impanel a grand jury in March, um, and she'll be possibly having that grand jury issue subpoenas and indictments shortly thereafter. Grand juries can work quickly when prosecutors want them to. So here we have uh, the, po- the real possibility of a grand jury being impaneled uh, as soon as two weeks from now or so, uh, looking at the evidence and almost certainly uh, giving the thumbs up for the subpoenas to start flowing and after that for the indictments to, to come as well. And one thing I want to note here that is not really well understood The governor of Georgia does not have the pardon power. The pardon power is issued by a board in Georgia. That board does lean right, but it's not as if the governor, Brian Kemp, could simply let Trump off the hook here. And it's not as if Brian Kemp would want to. I mean, Donald Trump has spent months attacking Brian uh, Kemp. And in fact, he was uh, apparently also on a call with Trump that probably sounded very similar to the one that uh, we that was recorded that we heard with the secretary of state. Uh, So I suspect Brian Kemp will actually be a witness here uh, to some extent in this case, as well as a Georgia Bureau of Investigations official who was overseeing one of the audits, uh, one of the post-election audits that apparently Trump tried to strong arm uh, that official as well. So, uh, you know, I I do love this one line that you pulled out from the uh, Trump Raffensperger call in in your coverage, Mark, Uh, quote, you know, Uh, Under new counts and under new views of the election results, we won the election, Trump said. New uh, ca- new counts? New I'm, new views? I'm really glad you, you highlighted that quote, because uh, I did spend a painstaking amount of time combing through that transcript. Um, you, you'll see some people argue that Trump can't be convicted under this 
this law, the, the, the ban on criminal solicitation of election fraud, because he didn't have the requisite state of mind, um, because he didn't actually want the Secretary of State to falsify records, because he was deluded enough to believe that mm. there were actually 12,000 secret votes for him out there that could be found. Um, two points about that. First of all, that's a question for the jury. That's not a question for prosecutors or the grand jury. You know, that is something that Trump could argue at a criminal trial. Mm. It's not something that could prevent an indictment altogether. But second, I think that any reasonable reading of that transcript proves that Trump was, in fact, looking for the Secretary of State to falsify records, to commit election fraud. It is very difficult to read those sentences in any other way. So his uh, defense here is has either got to be, I was, I was too st- stupid to know that you couldn't do this, or... I really, really believed it was true, and I believed I was getting screwed, and that uh, uh, Raffensperger and so forth just wasn't looking for the fraud hard enough. Had they looked for it, they would have found at least 11,781 votes. That's exactly right. All right. Good luck with that, Mr. President. Now, um, lastly, Mark... uh, In both of these cases, whether it's the New York case or the Georgia case, Would they actually send a former president of the United States to jail or might a, you know, a right leaning court sort of let him off the hook, maybe as a first time offender or some such? Do you actually envision uh, any court actually sending uh, Donald Trump to jail, whether it's in Georgia or New York? So in Georgia, this offense carries what appears to be a mandatory minimum of one year, although there may be ways for a judge to get around that, like a suspended sentence. Um, at the same time, remember that this case would be tried in Fulton County, where the judges are generally left-leaning and democratic. Mm-hmm. Uh, say what you will about the election of judges, um, but this is one advantage that state prosecutions have over federal prosecutions. Federal prosecutors tend to be elitists who stand by uh, fellow elites and don't want to make political waves. That's not always true of state prosecutors. Sometimes they do want to make political waves. Um, And I think that's also true of of state judges in a way that it's often not true of federal judges. There's a kind of symmetry there uh, where state judges are sometimes willing to say, you know what, I'm going to do this job as best I can and not look out for my own interests and not look out for the elites or the politicians or the very powerful people who come before me. Um, So I think there is a chance that Trump could face prison time. At the same time, we have to remember, it would be an extraordinary case. It would be the first time that this had ever happened. There would be many, many appeals. There would be pleas to the parole board, uh, to those who have the power to pardon. And, you know, the odds, I think, are still better than not that Trump will not see the inside of the jail. Could he? Is there any appeal that he could make to the U.S. Supreme Court to get him off the hook from a state case? Not really. He'd have to find some kind of federal constitutional question. I mean, with this Supreme Court, you never know. But these are not the kinds of cases that generally the U.S. Supreme Court has the power to overturn. <laughs> it's going to be an interesting year, Mark. Uh, I do love the way that you end uh, your, your story on uh, the Georgia case where you say now that he is a private citizen... Trump may no longer claim immunity from indictment. Trump spent the months after November 3 falsely accusing Democrats of stealing millions of votes. His his lies led to a violent insurrection and his own impeachment. All the while, Trump said he simply wanted courts to closely scrutinize alleged fraud in the election. 
he may soon get his wish. But of course, the fraud in this case would be his. <laughs> he seems to be the main culprit when it comes to election fraud in 2020. Going to be a fun year, Mark. I look forward to talking with you uh, much over this uh, over this year, no matter what comes to pass. Mark Joseph Stern uh, covers uh, the law and everything else over at uh, Slate.com. You can find his work there, and you can find him on the Twitters at MJS underscore DC. Mark Joseph Stern, as ever, my friend, thanks for uh, joining us on the broadcast. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much. You bet. Okay, we got to... Uh, actually, does... I'll ask you, can you do you think that Donald Trump, can you even envision Donald Trump ever actually ending up in prison? No, actually, I can't. I, I simply I've thought about this and I, I simply do not envision any court or jury, for example, yeah. deciding to go ahead and put him in jail because that's something that's never been done before. And I'm sure a lot of people recoil from the potential precedent that it might set. So, you know, he needs to be held accountable. He was criming all over the place. <laughs> but it's a really strange thing to consider. So. It is strange. Just the idea of sending a, a, a president, a former president in this case, yeah. to prison. It does seem unfathomable. It seems like, you know, he'll come up with some trick. He'll go to this U.S. Supreme Court. Somehow they'll get him off the hook. He'll get a friendly judge, a right wing. You know, oh, he's we'll let him off with with, well, time served, but he won't have any time served. But but they'll find some way. He's a first offender. He didn't know any better. Something like, yeah, exactly. So like a first offender idea to, to let him off the hook. Or, you know, he might draw it out so long over so many years, as we've already seen, his lawyers are very inventive about ways to try to delay justice. So, you know, he may just, this may be a, a reality TV courtroom Trump show that we have to live with for God knows how long. Or he pulls a Ken Lay. <laughs> You, you remember? mean the CEO of mm. Enron, I should say the former CEO of Enron, yeah. Ken Lay, who died before he could go to prison yeah. after he was convicted. Convicted, and then he just up and died. Wow. Well, okay. Theoretically, he up and died, by the way. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he actually did. But I do have one quick thing. I happen yes. to think um, that I agree with Mark, Mark Joseph Stern, that it is maybe too dangerous to have the Supreme Court go ahead and make that decision on pulling in the uh, the Pennsylvania case about whether or not mm-hmm. states uh, state legislatures have the sole unreviewable authority to make changes to election laws. I think it sounds really dangerous to me until we have H.R. 1 in place, if that ever happens in the House and Senate. You're just saying that. You're just taking his side because you feel <laughs> sorry for him because I so no. soundly defeated him in our debate. I That's think it was it very is. dangerous. That's I think he's got is. a good point. <clears throat> he's got a good point, but he's wrong about it. <laughs> My point is better. Thank you very much to our producer, Desi Doyen. I got to get out. Sorry, uh, you can't say anything more. That's it. Uh, thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen. Thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us here on the broadcast. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That is made possible by those of you who support our work. We are 100% listener-supported. Uh, you can uh, join in and become one of them at bradblog.com slash donate. Also, you can drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Bradblog. By the way, if you'd like to wish Desi Doyen happy birthday, you can send her email. <laughs> 
at greennews at bradblog.com. That is it. I will, uh, did I give my Twitter? Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, you can find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. I'll see you there until we see you here next time. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>